Welcome to Understanding Christianity, a podcast that helps believers understand the foundations of the Christian faith and also a way for you as a non-believer. Maybe you're an atheist or a skeptic and you have questions about what Christians actually believe. I'm your host. My name is Sean Cole. I am the lead pastor at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as a professor in theology and New Testament and Old Testament church history and ethics at Colorado Christian University. Over the past few podcasts, we've been exploring uh, what the Bible says about salvation. What does it mean for a person to be saved from their sins? And in last podcast, we looked at the order of salvation and we looked at predestination and effectual calling and regeneration and faith and repentance and justification. And and so in this podcast, we're going to finish up this glorious truth of what it means to be saved by looking at something that's very near and dear to the heart of Bible-believing Christians. And that is the belief in what we call eternal security. Or to ask it another way, can a true Christian actually lose his or her salvation? Or will God in His grace make sure that they persevere to the end? Obviously, the answer from the Bible is that a true Christian cannot lose his or her salvation. And God is faithful to do His work of grace in that person's life to bring them finally home to heaven. We're going to explore this in more detail in the podcast. So thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. Enjoy the teaching on eternal security. All right, so we're talking about salvation, okay? The big umbrella of salvation, the order of salvation. And I'm, I'm going to kind of review. I'm not going to write it on the board. I'm going to see if I can remember it from memory. But we're, we're looking at like all the ways that God has saved us. And we started with what? Election, predestination that God chose us in eternity past. Then we talked about effectual calling where there was a point in time where God called us to salvation Then thirdly was regeneration, where God caused us to be born again. He gave us a new heart. He he opened our our eyes. He he gave us new life. Then we repented and believed. Talked about repentance, talked about belief. Then once we repented and believed, we were justified. If you remember, that meant that we were declared not guilty. I kind of did the bank account illustration. Then we were adopted into God's family. And then we talked about sanctification last time, which is our spiritual growth, okay? And I think that's where we ended up. Is that where we ended up? Mm -hmm. So tonight, we are going to talk about what's called perseverance of the saints, or it's otherwise known as eternal security, or a term I don't necessarily like, but it's not that it's wrong, but once saved, always saved, okay? So let me give you the three views that have been around in history to answer this question of is your salvation permanent or can you lose your salvation? Okay, there's three views. I'm going to give you the, the historical names of these views. Okay, so the first view is the what we would call the Arminian view. And the Arminian, this is not in your notes, so I'm just kind of giving you an opening here. The Arminian view is named after a group of people who followed a man from Holland named um, Jacob Arminius. The Arminians today would be um, like an Arminian denomination would be like the Nazarene Church, the Assemblies of God, um, Wesleyan, Methodist, um, a lot of your um, 
some of your Pentecostals and others, and even um, what we would call free will Baptists. Those are kind of the general groups. This, this group, the Arminian position, says it is possible for a true Christian to lose his or her salvation. That if you're truly saved, you can lose it. You can either walk away from God or you can sin so much to put yourself out of God's grace and you can lose your salvation. Okay, that's the, the Arminian view, that you can lose your salvation. The other view is called, I'm just going to call it the non-lordship view. Um, and different people hold to this, not so much a denomination, but let me tell you what the non-lordship view says. The non-lordship view says, if a person, quote-unquote, asked Jesus into their heart, was baptized, and at one point confessed faith in Christ, but for the rest of their lives lived like they weren't saved, they're still going to go to heaven. They can even deny Jesus because once saved, always saved. If they, if they confess faith in Christ once, they're eternally secure. They will go to heaven, but they won't they won't get the rewards in heaven that other Christians that were faithful did. So they're going to kind of be second-class citizens in heaven. They're going to get to heaven, but they're not going to experience the fullness of their rewards. So technically, these people would actually say a person can. They would, they would actually say there's such a thing as a Christian atheist. Because at one point, Sally asked Jesus into her heart at age 12. She confessed Jesus, but for the rest of her life, she's lived however she wants. Once saved, always saved. She's going to go to heaven because she asked Jesus in her heart, but she's not going to experience the rewards the way that other Christians who have been faithful. So technically, she can even deny Jesus later on in life and still be saved because at one point, she asked Jesus into her heart. Okay, that's the non-lordship. The other view is what we would call um, the Reformed view. Um, this is the view that states this, Okay. I'll give you the definition, as you can see, which view we as a church hold to. Um, All those who are elect of God and truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere in their faith as Christians until the end of their lives, and that only those who do persevere to the end will show evidence that they were truly born again. In other words, the Reformed view says you can't lose your salvation. That true Christians, God will make sure if you're truly saved, you will stay saved. That, that you won't lose that salvation. Okay? So this would be more um, like Southern Baptists, Baptists, um, Presbyterian. I can't spell Presbyterian. Lutheran. And probably like Bible Church, Berean Church. Um, if you want to put a denominational label to them. So obviously, there's three views. Um, if you've been around Emmanuel long enough, obviously we hold to view number three, that you can't lose your salvation. Okay. Um, now, is this is a hard question. Is this a dogma or a doctrine? What does dogma mean? Okay, good question. Dogma means this is an absolute belief that you have to believe in order to be a Christian. It's, it's, an, it's an essential. A doctrine is a secondary issue that we can agree to disagree on, but doesn't affect you know, your, your salvation or um, like correct belief about like the Trinity or 
Jesus being the only way or the authority of the Bible. It's a, <laughs> it's a doctrine, okay? It's a doctrine. Okay, so it's not, because if we say it's a dogma, then we'd say all these people that go to the Nazarene church and go to the Assembly of God church and go to Wesleyan churches and go to Pentecostal churches, they're, they're heretical. If you put it in a dogma, you're saying they're wrong. They're heretical and they're not saved. So it has to be a doctrine, but... All right, so let's move it out of the area of dogma. It's no longer dogma. Okay, so it's in doctrine. Are some doctrines stronger and more important than other doctrines as far as what we would believe as a church? Okay, yes. So, for example, as a manual, what would be some doctrines that we as a church would say, you know what, these are hills that we're probably going to, may not die on, but we're going to really hold fast, hard and fast to these doctrines. Would this be one of them? Would eternal security be one of them? I think it would be. Historically in our church, it has been, um, according to, to the history of Emmanuel and, and just you know, my theology, the elders' theology, it would have to be a strong, strong doctrine. Okay, let me ask you, what would be another doctrine that would be really strong? Because we are a Baptist church. Baptism by, by water, okay, by... By dunking under the water after, after salvation, okay? So those would be two pretty big doctrines that we would hold to um, as a church. Now, there's others that are secondary that we could say, you know what? They're important, but we're not going to be, we're not going to, those aren't going to define us. If, if there's something that's going to define a manual that's going to be a doctrinal distinctive, not a dogma, but a doctrinal distinctive, it would have to be we, we practice believer's baptism and we believe in eternal security. Okay, those are and I would just say, if, if you're a part of a manual and, and those two things make you uncomfortable, you're probably not going to be comfortable here. It doesn't mean that you're not welcome, and it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be in a manual. It's just that those are doctrinal distinctives that we hold dearly that we're not going to budge on. So if you're coming and wanting us to change, we're not <laughs> on those eternal security and baptism. Okay, So let's open our Bibles to Romans, because that's where we've been. And let's look at Romans chapter 8. Um, verses 31 through 39, a very famous passage of Scripture. This is one of the foundational passages that teach um, eternal security, okay, or perseverance of the saints. I'm going to use, I think there are two sides to the same coin as you're turning there. Think of two sides of the same coin. One side of the coin is perseverance of the saints. The other side of the coin is eternal security. They fit hand in glove, but they're somewhat distinctive. One is we persevere to the end. The other is God keeps us to the end. Okay, so one is, I'll show you how these work together. So let's, let's read Romans 8, starting in verse 31. Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now this is a rhetorical question, and what's, what would be the answer? God is for us. Who can be against us? The answer is, okay, nobody. Because if God's on your side and God's for you, it doesn't matter who comes against you. It doesn't matter. God's on your side. God has done this salvation in your life. Verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, that's talking about the cross there, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And those all things there he's talking about are things related to our salvation, the things he's talked about up there uh, earlier in the passage about being foreknown and predestined and called and justified and glorified, all these things that relate to our salvation. 
Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? And the answer is nobody can condemn us. Nobody can bring a charge. Nobody can come against us because God is on our side. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now let's just stop right there. If Jesus died on the cross and he rose again and he's seated now at the right hand of the Father, what does this text say he's doing for us? He's interceding. What does it mean that Jesus is interceding for us? What does that word mean? What's an interceding? What's intercession? On On your behalf. And so what's Jesus doing on your behalf? Or what is... Okay, speaking up for you, being your legal representative, being, okay, so declaring us not guilty. So if Jesus is interceding for us at the right hand of the Father, is he ever going to stop doing that? And what happens if he were to stop doing that? You'd be in trouble. The point is, Jesus never stops doing that for those whom he saved. So he's always there at the right hand of the Father defending us. When the, when the devil comes and brings accusations or, or whatever, Jesus is always there defending us. Now here we come to the famous passage starting in verse 35. Who shall, what's the word there? Separate us from the love of Christ. So here's the, here's the question. Paul, Paul's asking this big question. Is there anything in the universe that can actually separate us from God's love? Okay, and the answer is nothing, okay? Now, can a true believer ever be separated from God's love? Can a true believer ever be separated? No, no, you can never be separated from God's love. If you are saved, you can't be unsaved or or lose that. And so Paul could have just stopped right there and said, who who shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ? And he could have just stopped and said nothing. But what does he do? He builds a huge case here to include everything you can think of that would come against a Christian that would separate us. And here's what he says. Shall tribulation? No. Shall distress? No. Persecution? No. Famine? Nakedness? Danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So if we go through danger and we go through persecution and we go through trials, is that going to separate us from Jesus? No. Okay. Then verse 37, what does he say? No, in all these things, we are what? More than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, do you guys know what that word more than conquerors is in the original language? It's the word hyper Nike. Did you guys know that Nike is a Greek word? It's not just a shoe or clothing. Nike in the Greek text means conqueror or victor or... um, Triumph, okay? And when you put the word huper in front of the word, it means over and above or more than or ultra. So Paul is saying here, because of what Christ has done, we are more than ultra victorious, ultra conquerors, ultra um, triumphant, because of what Christ has done. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then Paul gives this declaration in verse 38. For I am sure, does Paul say, I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of 50-50 on this. I'm not quite sure. I need to think about it. What does he say? I am sure that neither death nor life 
Okay, so if you die, is that going to separate? If you're a true Christian, if you die, is that going to separate you from? No. Okay. Angels nor rulers. So can an angel, even a demon, come and separate you? Things present nor things to come, an unknown future. Powers, height, depth. And if that's not all, I think I've covered my bases. Paul just says, just to encapsulate it all in, just in case I forgot something. Nor anything else in all creation will be able to what? Separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing in creation that's going to separate us. Now, those that believe you can lose your salvation, I've heard them say this. Well, there's one person that can separate us, and that's myself. What if I choose to walk away? What if I voluntarily make the choice to walk away and take myself out of God's love? How would you answer a person that says that? Okay, did you ever have, that's a legitimate question. Did you ever have it to start with? Is God going to allow that to happen? No. If you are truly saved, is he going to allow you to be unsaved? Even if you wanted to. And are you going to want to? And if you want to, it's probably because you never were in the first place. But also, let me just ask you a question. If there's anything else in all creation, are you a creation? Are you a created being? So that even includes you. You're, you're included in everything else in creation, even yourself. You can't even yourself take you out of Christ's hands. Okay? So, let's talk about perseverance of the saints because it's a little bit different than eternal security. Perseverance of the saints states that we must persevere in faith if we're to finally be saved. It's not how you start, but how you finish. Can someone be saved who, at the end of their life, denies Jesus? I'll throw that out there and let you think about that. What I want to show you is that there are some passages of Scripture that speak about persevering to the end that you need to know are in the Bible. And how, how do we deal with these? 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I preached, which you also received, in which you also stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Now, there's an if there. What does if mean? You won't be saved if you what? If you don't hold fast to the word I preached. If you believed in vain, you won't be saved. So what must you do? You must hold fast. Okay? In order to be saved, you must hold fast. Now hang with me here, okay? Colossians 1, 21-23. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If you what? Continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and about which I, Paul, was made a minister. So what does he say here? You won't be saved unless you what? Continue in the faith. 
So what did the, what did the um, let's look at these, but let's go back here. What did the, the um, Corinthians passage say? You, if, if you what? Hold fast. What does the Colossians passage say? You won't be saved unless you continue. Continue in the faith. Do either one of these words say start? You'll be saved if you start. What does it say? Hold fast. Continue in the faith. Okay? 2 Timothy 2, 11-13. It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. So there's a possibility that if you deny Jesus you won't be saved. Mark 13, 13. This is pretty, pretty straightforward. Why is it not on there? Do you guys have it on your sheet? Yeah. Let, let me read to you what Mark 13, 13 says. Mark 13, 13 should say, You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. So what do you have to do? Endure to the end. Okay, so we've got to deal with these passages of Scripture. Because there's an if clause there, right? If. If something doesn't happen, then something doesn't happen. If you don't hold fast, you don't get saved. If you don't continue in the faith, you don't get saved. If you don't endure to the end, you don't get saved. Now, what's the danger when just looking at those passage of scripture what's the first thing that would come to your mind that would make you think if i don't do those then i could possibly lose my salvation so now you know where people that believe you can lose your salvation they look at these passages of scripture and they say now wait a minute there's some conditional statements in the bible that speak about if i don't do something i won't be saved So at face value, must a Christian endure to the end to be saved? And you have to say, yes. Okay. But, here's the main teaching. If you're truly saved, God by His grace will give you the power to do it. And He will make sure you do it. Okay? So, Nobody's going to get saved that doesn't endure, that doesn't continue, that doesn't hold fast. The point is, God is the one that's going to make sure you hold fast. He's going to make sure that you continue in the faith. He's going to make sure you endure to the end, if you're truly one of His, one of his children. Okay? So, perseverance of the saints says, you've got to live a full life of obedience to faith in Christ and endure to the end to be saved. Eternal security, the flip side of the coin says... Those whom God has justified will be kept for God for final salvation. So the flip side of perseverance of the saints is eternal security. Which means what? So there's two tracks going on. We've got to persevere to the end. God's going to make sure we persevere to the end. He's going to keep us. He's going to hold us. He's going to secure us. He's going to give us the grace to do it. Okay? But this is still required. 
You've got to persevere to the end. God's just going to make sure you get there. Does, does that make sense? Okay. Now let's just stop and ask a question. Are there people who start out and profess faith in Christ but don't make it to the end? Were they truly saved? Our answer would be no. Others would say, well, they were truly saved, but they lost it. And the non-lordship people would say, well, it doesn't matter how you live. As long as you profess, ask Jesus in your heart, you're still going to go to heaven, but by the skin of your teeth. And you're going you're to lose out on a bunch of rewards. So what does the Bible say about God's keeping power? Probably the best passage of Scripture is John 10, 26-30. One of my favorite passages of Scripture. He's talking to the Pharisees who are not his sheep. As a matter of fact, he says that you guys are sons of the devil. doesn't sound like believers in Jesus if you're called sons of the devil. He says, you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, let me just, let's just break this passage down, okay? Let's actually turn there in your Bibles, because I want you to be able to... Some of you are comfortable writing in your Bibles, some of you aren't, but I think it's important for you to see exactly the, what Jesus is saying here. Because I want to teach you the wording that he uses here. So look very specifically at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Okay, so what, is that, what does verse 27 tell us about Jesus? He has sheep. And what are those sheep going to do? They're going to hear his voice. How do sheep hear? What does it mean for sheep to hear the voice of Jesus? Is that like anybody here hear the voice of Jesus? He's calling, he's calling. What does it mean for us to hear the voice of Jesus today? How do we hear the voice of Jesus? Through the Bible, through the Bible, okay? So when God speaks, he speaks to us through the Bible. If you're truly a sheep, you're going to hear that. And what are you going to do? What does it say? My sheep hear my voice. And what do they do? They follow me. Okay? Now, verse 28. I give them eternal life. Who's giving the eternal life? Jesus. And pardon the expression here, but is Jesus an Indian giver? Is he going to renege? I gave you eternal life. He goes on to explain it. And they will what? Never. Now, circle the word never. In the original language, it's the strongest way you can say never. It's what's called a double negative. What's a double negative in English? Yes. No? Yes? Okay. A double negative would be, you would translate it like this. No, not ever. They will know not ever, not never, ever, 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 ever perish. It's, in the Greek language, it's the strongest way of saying, if I have given them eternal life, they will never, ever, no, not ever perish. Why will they never perish? Number one, Jesus gave them eternal life. But notice what he says. The reason they will never perish 
and that, and that no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, okay, the Father's given them. Is the Father going to take away what He's given to Jesus? He's greater than all. What's God greater than? All those things that Paul said, life, death, height, power, Jesus is greater, the Father's greater than all that. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So whose hand are we in? Two hands. Did you see it? No one's able to snatch me. No one's able to snatch you out of my hand. Who's speaking? So we're in Jesus' hand. He says, no one's able to snatch you out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So it's almost as if you're in a double grip. You're in the grip of Jesus, and if that's not strong enough, God the Father's surrounded you with another grip, and nobody can come pluck you out of the hand of either one of them because God the Father and Jesus the Son are one. That's a strong statement from Jesus. So is there any possibility based upon these two passages of Scripture, Romans chapter 8 and John chapter 10, that a true sheep, a Christian, can lose it? No. Let's look at 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. It's on the screen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. So who's caused us to be born again? God. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain what? An inheritance. Does that mean we have it yet? What's the inheritance He's talking about? Heaven. What type of inheritance is it? It's imperishable, which means what? can't die. It's undefiled. It's not going to be corrupt. And it won't fade away. It won't disappear. Where is it? It's reserved. It's on reserve for you. God's paid for it with His credit card. And it's reserved for you. It's facetiously speaking, He's paid for in the blood of Christ. Who are what? Protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That phrase right there, protected by the power of God through faith, is very, very important. It's the most important part of that. What must you exercise to be saved? Faith. Must you live a life of faith to the end? Yes. Must you endure to the end in your faith? Must you hold fast in your faith, must you continue in the faith? Must you endure to the end of the faith? Yes. But how does that happen? What does, God, what does Paul, Peter say? You are protected by the power of God to do that. So God's power is protecting you. The word there in the original language often carries this idea that troops are coming against you and you are at the front of the battle being surrounded by this huge army. So it's this idea that God in His sovereignty is protecting you, making sure that you're going to get to heaven, and He's given you the power to do that through faith. So He's going to protect you. He's going to guard you. He's going to give you the power to do what? He's going to give you the power to hold fast to the end. He's going to give you the power to continue in the faith. He's going to give you the power to endure to the end through faith, to have that permanent reserve um, inheritance waiting for you. Jude. The end of Jude, there's a doxology where Jude says, Now to him who's able to keep you from what? Stumbling. What does that mean? Does it mean like God keeps you from tripping when you're walking down the street? Is that what he, 
What is stumbling? Spiritually stumbling, what does that mean? Lose your salvation. God, He's able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God is able to keep you. He's able to keep you from falling. By His power, He's able to keep you from losing your salvation. We're going to get to this in a few weeks on Sunday morning. By the way, I thought I could preach one final sermon on 1 Thessalonians. And I, and I actually I got the, all the material together, and it was like 12 pages. My sermons are only 10. I'm like, that's a lot of information. So then I went back and said, okay, let's cut it down. And then I went back and cut it down. So it's going to be like five weeks, I think. So we're not going to finish 1 Thessalonians soon. There's a lot in that last. But here's what it says. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. How, how, how often? Or how much? Entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame when? If you've been tracking with us on Sunday morning, it's all about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God is able to make you ready for the day of salvation, the day of the Lord. He's able to make you blameless. He's able to make you entirely sanctified. And what does it say? Faithful is he who calls you and he will also bring it to pass. He's faithful to do what? He will bring it to pass. He's not going to let you fall through the cracks if you're truly His. Philippians 1.6 is probably a famous passage of Scripture. For I am confident of this very thing. Paul says, I'm confident of it. In Romans, he said, I'm sure of it. That he who began a good work in you, what's that good work that God began in you? Salvation. He will perfect it or he will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, until the second coming. What God started, he is going to finish. And Paul says, I'm confident of that. And there's many, many more that we could look at, but you guys tell me. Will God make sure that a true Christian stays faithful to the end? Yes. Will a true Christian ever lose his or her salvation? No. Okay. Can we be emphatic on that? I mean, can we say, I mean, again, I think it's a doctrine that we've got to elevate higher than other doctrines to say it's pretty clear in the Scriptures. Now, here's a problem that hopefully it's turning in your heads. Okay, Pastor Sean, but what, what I've observed or what I've seen or how do I handle a person that went forward at the altar or younger, as a young kid, asked Jesus into their heart, even got baptized, joined the church, got all excited for Jesus, and now it seems like they've totally denied the faith and they're living like the devil, and they have looks like they have no relationship with Jesus. Okay, has anybody known anybody like that, or met anybody like that, or observed anything like that? Okay, what would be the three answers? Answer number one, if you're an Arminian, what would you say? That person had a genuine salvation experience, but they lost it. Answer number two from the non-lordship people would say, they were genuinely saved, but it really doesn't matter how you live, because once saved, always saved. They're going to get to heaven by the skin of their teeth. They're just going to miss out on rewards. Or our view would say what? It's probable evidence that they were never 
truly saved in the first place because if they were, they would persevere to the end. Now here's the danger. Are we allowed to ever pronounce someone as lost? No. Are we... Because... Well, let's look at that chart again that I did it last a few weeks ago. Okay, so like here's your salvation and here's heaven. And if you plot your life, you know, it could be that what you're observing in a person's life is you're looking at a snapshot where they're at the lowest point in their life. They're backsliding. They're in rebellion. They are living nowhere near their confession of faith. So all you're observing is this point in their life. Now, one of two things are going to happen. If they're a true Christian, if they're a true Christian, is God going to keep them in that state forever? What's he going to do? He's going to pull them back. Now, he may pull them back through pain, through discipline, through hard times, through something. But if, if you're truly God's child, he's not going to keep you down there. He's going to pull you out of it. And it may be painful. Okay? Or send you crawling on your knees. Or, or, or however God does it. Or it could be that this person's going to stay there for the rest of their life and it would be evidence that they were never saved in the first place. The problem is we don't know the future. So we can't sit there and look in a person's heart and make a judgment. We can't make a pronouncement. All we can do is look at their life and say, either way, what's the one thing you should be doing either way? Praying for them. Praying for what? Repentance. Because either way, they've got to repent, right? If they're a Christian, they need to repent and come back. If they're not a Christian, they need to repent. So either way you look at it, they're not where they're supposed to be and you need to be praying. I would say this. If you aren't sure and you really don't know, in your heart and mind, you should, you should almost pray that they're an unbeliever and pray for their salvation and pray that God would save them. Um, either way. But, but you can't make a pronouncement. Okay? But... There's a passage in Scripture in 1 John that says falling away from faith and holiness shows that we never belong to Christ in the first place. 1 John 2.19. Let's look at this carefully. They, they went out from us. Okay, who's the they and the us? Who's the us in this passage of Scripture? The church, Okay. And John says they went out. What does it mean they went out? Does it mean they went to the store? They, they left. They, either, they, either, they le- either they were kicked out or probably they left. They just like left the faith, left the church, left the faith. Okay? They left us. Why? They were not really of us, which means what? They were not really saved. For if they had been of us, if they had been saved, what would they have done? They would have remained, continued, held fast. But they went out so that it would be shown, it would be demonstrated, there would be fruit, there would be evidence that they are all not of us. So the question is, are there times in your life where there seems to be people that are part of us? And after a while, they go out from us and act like the world because they were never really part of us. 
There's a verse of Scripture that says that that can happen. Now, again, I don't know all the, all the intricacies of how that works in a person's life, but you've probably observed it or seen it or experienced someone that you thought, man, at one point they were strong, they confessed Jesus, they were even baptized, they may have even served in a church. Um, you know, I'm thinking of a person right now that breaks my heart because this person was Aiden's Sunday school teacher at my former church. When Don and I would go out, we lived in Colorado Springs, we would take Aiden and Zach over to this family's house. He was um, kind of one of the elders in the church. Both their boys were in my youth group. Um, she was a strong Christian. She taught vacation Bible school. She taught Tony school. She was on a lot of um, teams in the church. And um, right before we moved here, she went off the deep end and left her husband and left the boys and doesn't want anything to do with her and, and totally walked away from church and is acting like, and I guess has had two or three relationships since then. And it's like, I don't know. If she's truly a Christian, God's going to bring her back. But from what I'm observing, it's like, what happened to this person? Um, was she, and it makes you wonder, was she really of us? Is she going to come back? And so I guess pastorally, this is what I would encourage you. Always hold out hope that someone will come back. Never write anybody off. Um, you know. And Satan is a well and a well. Oh, yeah. And he can work things. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So when I was growing up in Southern Baptist churches, I was told this, never question or doubt your salvation. Once saved, always saved. You ask Jesus into your heart. He came into your heart. Never doubt your salvation. Never um, inspect yourself. Never examine yourself because by golly, once saved, always saved. And you, you, know, you, you need to just put a stake in that. Theologically, is that true? Once saved, always saved. Yes. But does the Bible ever tell us to examine or to inspect or to make sure we're saved? And yes, it does. Okay. So we are to make our calling and election sure. Let me give you a passage of Scripture that teaches that. 2 Peter 1.10 Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. So you are to make sure that you're saved. 2 Corinthians 13.6, I think is what it is. It's not on your sheet, but let me, let me um, turn there real quick. Actually, just turn to 2 Corinthians 13.6. Or is it 13.5? I think it's 13.6. No, 13.5. I'm sorry, 13.5. 2 Corinthians 13.5 is another passage of Scripture. So you have a passage of Scripture that says to um, make, your, make your salvation sure. Make sure you're saved. And if you read Peter's context, he's basically saying if you continue producing fruit and showing evidence of growth, it's probably good, good proof that you're saved if you're, if, you're, if you're showing forth fruit. What does 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail to meet the test? So he tells us to examine ourselves, to test ourselves, to make our calling and election sure. Now, what I want to deal with next 
is a very difficult passage of Scripture that most Arminians will use to prove that a person that's genuinely saved can lose his or her salvation. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 6. We call this a problem passage in the Bible. It's a, it's a difficult passage of Scripture. It's one that at first glance seems, seems to prove that a true Christian can lose their salvation. Because the language that the writer of the Hebrews, Hebrews the language that the writer of Hebrews uses is very, very strong. So Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 6, this is a passage of Scripture that if you've, never, if you've never dealt with this passage of Scripture, you've never read this passage of Scripture, this is one that people that hold that you can lose your salvation will bring up all the time. So we've got to deal with it, and we've got to rightly interpret it. Okay? So before we even look at this passage of Scripture to see what it says, comparing Scripture to Scripture, can what we're about to read mean a true Christian can lose his or her salvation based upon everything else we've looked at? No. So whatever we read in Hebrews 4, 6 through, I mean, in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, it means something. We've just got to figure out what it means. Okay, so let's read it. The ESV starts out the way the Greek text starts out. One of the first words in the Greek text is impossible. And oftentimes in Greek, whatever word you put at the beginning of the sentence is often used for emphasis, and that's the emphasis that's used here. For it is what? Impossible. Let's just stop right there. Is he saying improbable? He's saying impossible. For what? In the case of those who have, and there's five things listed here, once been enlightened, number one. Number two, who have tasted the heavenly gift. Number three, have shared in the Holy Spirit. Number four, have tasted the goodness of the word of God. And number five, the powers of the age to come. And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him to contempt. It's impossible to bring someone back to repentance who has fallen away. Now, at first glance, does that sound like you can lose your salvation? All right, let's, 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 let's explore this text and find out what it really teaches. Would you agree with this statement? No one is saved without genuine repentance and faith, whereby the Holy Spirit has done an overwhelming work of grace in the life of a sinner to bring them from death to life. Would everyone agree with that statement? No one is saved without genuine repentance and faith, right? Well, how does a person get saved? They've got to repent and believe. Okay? So nobody's saved without repenting and believing, right? So how do you get saved? You've got to... Repent and believe. Okay, so let's just write a key word up here. What must you do to be saved? And believe. Without those, is salvation possible? No, you've got to repent and believe. Okay. Some people would argue that the unforgivable sin that Christians can commit to lose their salvation is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You ever heard that? It is an unforgivable sin. Jesus says it will not be forgiven. The question is, can a Christian commit it? The answer is no. A true, born-again Christian 
cannot commit the sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You might even blaspheme the name of Christ by using Jesus' name as a cuss word if you're really mad. Or engage in things you never thought you would, doing some pretty devious things. But if you're truly saved, you can never get unsaved and beyond forgiveness. If you're saved, can you ever be unsaved or unforgiven? So I cannot, I think I've told you this before. I had a lady call up one time on the phone, member of our church, and she was sobbing deeply. I mean, she was sobbing uncontrollably. I could barely, I mean, I barely understand what she's saying. And once she finally got it out, she said, Pastor Sean, I think I've committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I'm afraid I'm going to go to hell. I mean, she was really bothered. And she had a very tender conscience, and she was very, I mean, she didn't explain what particular sin. By the way, it's not a particular sin, um, like murder or even adultery. But the very fact that she was broken and that she was concerned and that she was distraught showed me that she had not committed it. Because if you commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, you don't care. (laughs) And you're not bothered by it. And it's not a big deal. So, let's talk about these five benefits that the writer of Hebrews gives that these people have experienced. These people. It is impossible in the case of those who have, and he lists these five things. What are these five things, and who are these people that have experienced these? Okay, Because it's important to determine why he lists these five things. What's the first thing? You guys tell me. What's the first thing? Okay. Um, I don't think she's got... I don't think... Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. I think that the writer of Hebrews... Let's go back there. Let me go back. I'm getting, I'm getting lost in my notes. The writer of Hebrews gives a list of five benefits that these people have experienced in their close proximity to Jesus and in the church, but as we shall see, were never truly saved. Let's just stop right there. Is there such a thing as a person that has close proximity to the church and knows spiritual lingo and has a lot of church experiences but cannot, that's not saved? Happens all the time. Okay? So let's look at these five benefits or these things that, that these people experienced. The first is that they've been enlightened. In other words, they came to the knowledge, they came to the knowledge of the truth. They understood the facts of the gospel. They know the Bible. But yet they've never truly been converted and saved. Being enlightened does not mean they were saved. Anywhere else in the Bible, does salvation, is it spoken of as being enlightened? Enlightened just means what? You kind of, you've got knowledge. I'm smarter now. I mean, Ben Franklin, who was not a Christian, used to go listen to um, George Whitfield preach. And um, he really liked to hear George Whitfield preach. And, um, you know, it was like, why are you going and listening to him? Because you don't even believe any word he says. He goes, I don't believe what he says, but he believes what he says. And that, that I really am engaged by a guy that's a good speaker. So some people may like to listen to preaching because they're engaged, they like good speakers. Or maybe they like to hang around church because cool things are happening. They've gotten knowledge. Okay? They've, they've, they've been enlightened. But it doesn't mean they've been saved. What's the second benefit? 
They've tasted the heavenly gift. Now, what in the world does that mean? What's the heavenly gift? Well, it could be salvation, but they've tasted it. They sampled it. They did not fully swallow, consume, and digest Christ, but just sampled him. They got close enough to try him out for a while, but they were never fully regenerated. Can you, quote-unquote, taste Jesus? Try him on for size? Kind of hang around Jesus for a while, but not truly be saved? Okay? So they were enlightened. They, They tasted some things about heaven. Third, this is where it gets a little bit different. They shared or were partakers in the Holy Spirit. Now, okay, that, oh, wow. That must mean they're saved because they have the Holy Spirit. Is, is it, careful with the wording here. This word partakers really is the only time it's ever used in association with the Holy Spirit, and it means association. They were associated. What words are usually used of a Christian's relationship to the Holy Spirit? Baptized, sealed, filled, and dwelt. Not an association. You can have an association but not have an actual indwelling. So evidently these people may have even seen evidences of conviction. Can a person be under conviction by the Holy Spirit and still not be saved? Can they be around people that talked about the Holy Spirit or evidences of the Holy Spirit? Um, you know, things, you know, and, and, and let's just stop. Where are these things happening? Being enlightened, tasting the heavenly gift, and seeing evidence of the Holy Spirit. Is this happening among the tribal peoples who've never heard of Jesus before in their lives? It happens in the church. It happens among church people. So whatever this is, it's not a sin committed by somebody in the deep dark jungles of Africa that's never heard. This is committed by people who have knowledge of the Bible, sat under good preaching, had an association with the Holy Spirit, know the lingo. It happens among church people. This is why it's so scary. What's the fourth thing? They tasted the same word again, the goodness of the word of God. In other words, I take that to mean, man, they sat under good preaching and teaching. They were, they were well taught. Hey, so-and-so, can you tell me um, what justification by faith alone means? Oh, sure, they could spit it back out. They know the theology even. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God. They've sat under good preaching and teaching. Fifth, they've tasted the powers of the age to come. If you go back to Hebrews 2, 3 through 4, the word for miracles is, used, is the same used word for powers here. So they may have even seen miraculous manifestations of God's power. Did that happen in Jesus' day? What did the Pharisees, what was blasphemy of the Holy Spirit the Pharisees did? Do you remember? Jesus was performing miracles. Did they deny he was performing miracles? They could not deny he was performing miracles. They saw it with their own eyes. There was empirical evidence in front of them that he was performing miracles. So they couldn't deny he was performing miracles. What was their accusation? You're doing it by the power of Satan. This is not from God, it's from Satan. So they could not deny that Jesus did miracles. What they did says, okay, you're doing miracles, but it's from the power of Satan. So even people can see Jesus in the flesh performing miracles and see even Lazarus raised from the dead or walking on water and experience the powers of the age to come and still not be saved. 
Okay? And so the writer of Hebrews says, if a person can experience all these things, they can be enlightened, they can have knowledge of the truth, they can sit under good preaching, uh, they can um, see the miraculous, they can see evidence of the Holy Spirit, and they still can't be what? Brought back to repentance. Now, here's the question I asked earlier. Where do all these things take place? In church, around Christian people. The sin of apostasy or falling away or blasphemy, the Holy, whatever you call it, can be committed by very religious people who hang around the church. The Pharisees were guilty of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. These people he's talking about here that are never going to be brought back to repentance were people that had experienced the life of the church. Now, here's the question. Do we see evidence in the Bible of anybody who's done this? Well, if your name was Demas, 2 Timothy 4.10, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Demas started out with Paul as a ministry partner, but what did he do? He deserted or made shipwreck of his faith. He fell away. In Acts chapter 8, there's a magician by the name of Simon Magus. He was actually baptized by Philip. But when he saw the power of the Holy Spirit, he wanted to capitalize on that because he was a magician. He really wanted to have that power for himself so he could be a better magician. Now you would think, here's a guy that believed the gospel and got baptized. He must be saved. But later on, Peter gets in his face and says, your heart's wicked. You're in the bond of iniquity. You're lost. Okay? So you got a guy named Simon Magus who was even saved, quote-unquote, saved and baptized that was not that was not truly saved. And what about Judas? you got a clear example there, don't you? Do you think Judas preached? In Luke chapter... No, in Matthew chapter um, 11, 10, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends out the disciples to preach and teach. Think Judas stayed back? Think Judas performed miracles? Think Judas knew theology? The parable of the soils clearly demonstrates this as well. What is the parable of the soils? We won't have time to, um, to read that. But if you look at the parable of the soils, which is the one soil that caused, that um, produced fruit? Now, let's go back here to chapter... I don't have this in your notes, so I don't want to leave you hanging. It is impossible to what? To bring to repentance someone who's experienced all these things but have fallen away. Now, there's the term there, fallen away. If a person has fallen away, the writer of Hebrews says it's impossible for them to repent. And if they don't repent, what does it mean? They don't get saved. So this falling away puts them outside the possibility of ever repenting and being saved. So they're never going to get saved. The question we've got to ask then, okay, what is this falling away then? Is, is he talking about Christians here? No. He's talking about people who profess faith in Christ, hung around church, did all these things, but they were false converts, but then they fell away. 
Is there any specific sins listed here? Is murder listed here? Can you lose your salvation if you murder? Well, Moses, Paul, and David are pretty good examples of murderers. Can you lose your salvation if you commit adultery? David's a pretty good example. Okay, so is falling away a committing of specific sins? No. This word, fallen away, is in a strong usage in the original language that means basically this, an obstinate, solid, defiant, prolonged, rebellious denial of Jesus. It's not just committing some sins here and there. It is a conscience, prolonged, hardness of heart, almost like Pharaoh, where you are prolonging your hatred for God and it's put you beyond the point of ever being able to repent. Now, again, we don't know who these people are, just like we can't make a judgment on them. All we can say, all you can say about this passage of Scripture is, is this. It's scary. It's a warning. And we can't pronounce it upon people, but God can and will do that. We, we don't know who he does it to or how it happens, but there's a passage of Scripture that says it's impossible for that to happen. What yes? What passage of Scripture was that? Hebrews chapter 6. Okay, that's Yeah, okay. verses 4 through 6. Now, I want to give you other proof, too. I haven't given you any more proof that this is not Christians. Let me give you some grammatical proof that he's not talking about Christians. Hebrews chapter 1 through Hebrews chapter 6, the writer uses us, we, our. But then notice what he says in chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those. He doesn't say us, we. He switches to another group of people. So it's almost as if he's saying, I'm not not talking about us as Christians anymore. I'm giving a warning to those that think they're Christians that aren't. And then go down further in the verse. Go into verse 7. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose forsaken is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to be burned, is near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. And what in the world does this have to do with anything? Do you know how that relates to other things that Jesus teaches? You will know them by their fruit. If they produce fruit, they're genuinely of Christ. If they produce thorns and thistles and no fruit. But look at verse 9. Here's the key. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So who does he go back to? I've been talking about us. I'm going to get to a warning here and talk about those people that think they're us, but they're not. And there's a warning, a strong warning. It's impossible to bring them back if, you know, to repentance if they've fallen away. But I'm going to come back and talk about you. I have better things to say about you, things that pertain to salvation. I wasn't talking about you before, but I'm going to get back to talking about you now. So this is not teaching that a true Christian can lose his or her salvation. What it's teaching is that there can be those who are false converts who profess faith in Christ, who at a later point in time defiantly 
hard-heartedly, prolongedly, vehemently, obstinately reject Jesus. And it puts them in a position beyond repentance. And if they can't repent, they can't get saved. Now, us looking at that, we can't make that pronouncement. It's God, God does it. But it's there as a warning. Why is it there? It's a warning to people who think they're secure because they've tasted the age to come. They've been under good preaching. They've, they've come to church their whole life. They can memorize Bible verses. They may have even you know, experienced the miraculous, but they've never truly been saved. It definitely takes away from that. It's a, yeah, and the question is, well, the people that believe you can lose your salvation say, well, why is it in there? If, if it's not possible to lose your salvation, why is it in there? He's talking to Christians. Well, let me give you an, let me give, give you an answer to that. On a Sunday morning, all right, this is a sermon. Hebrews is a sermon. The book of Hebrews is a sermon written to a church that was in danger of going back to Judaism. They were in danger of falling away. As a pastor on a Sunday morning, when I look out over a church of 300, is it possible, maybe even probable, that there are people sitting out there who have been coming for years, who have been fooled into thinking they're Christians just by virtue of them attending church? So in a congregation of people, are there mixed audiences? Are there saved and lost? Now, there's people that are lost that know they're lost. I'm an atheist. I'm coming. I, my friend dragged me here. I have nothing to do with Christianity, but I'm here because my friend invited me. Then you have the truly saved that are there for the right reasons to, to worship the Lord. But then you have the third category of what we call false converts. And so these warning passages in the Bible are not addressed to Christians. They're not necessarily addressed to lost people. They're addressed to that other category of false converts to shake them out of their security to, to lead them into salvation. Now, they're lost, but they don't know they're lost. They think they're saved. That's why those warning passages are there. And again, it goes back to it doesn't give you permission just to live however you want. You've got to persevere to the end. Any questions on eternal security, perseverance of the saints, before we move on to the last two, um, the last two issues here tonight? Any questions on that? That was a lot of information. But I think it's important for your security and your salvation to know that you, if you're truly saved, God will keep you saved. All right, next on the list is death. You're like, how's that part of salvation? Well, it's something none none of us really wants to talk about, but unless you're here when the second coming happens, every single one of us in this room is going to what? We're going to die. Is death the final enemy? Yeah, it is. Why, Why do we die? We die because Adam and Eve sinned and brought death into the world so there are people right now who have died and jesus has not come back yet so what are they doing it's called the intermediate state they're they're in heaven right now but hebrews nine twenty seven refutes reincarnation okay man just as man is destined to die once you don't die multiple times come back And after that, to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, because he already did that once on the cross. The second time he comes, he's going to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The second coming, he's going to come to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. But we're destined to die once. And Jesus addresses death 
It's something we all have to face. Matthew 10, 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Remember, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So for the Christian, they may kill your body or your body may die or you may, um, you know, however, however that happens, but that's not the end. They, they can't kill your soul. Your soul, because you're saved, goes on to be with Jesus in heaven. But that's not the end. That's just what's going on right now. Ecclesiastes 12, 7, and, and the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. So what is physical death? Physical death is separation of the soul from the body. Right now in heaven, right now, and I know there's no, we have to deal with time-space continuum because I'm not sure if people in heaven are in a time continuum like we are. But in heaven right now, Christians that are there do not have bodies. They're just souls. Why? Were you here a couple weeks ago? <laughs> because Christ hasn't come back. And so at the second coming, the body is going to raise from the grave a new body. It's going to be reunited with that soul that's in heaven. And then you're going to get a glorified body to live on the new heavens and the new earth. That hasn't happened yet. So all that's in heaven right now are souls awaiting their bodies. Now, I don't know if the souls up there are like, okay, it's been you know, 2,000 years I've been waiting, or if it's, if it's, I don't know, we don't know yet because we haven't been there. I don't know if it's instantaneous from the moment that you die and go to heaven versus the resurrection. It's all one moment. But, but either way, right now, you can have the assurance that your loved one who's died in Christ, their soul is experiencing joy in heaven with Jesus. But they're separated from their body. So for the unbeliever, the unbeliever, death is a curse. It's a penalty. It's an enemy. It's not extinction or annihilationism, but it's eternal separation from God. It's, it's hell. But for the unbeliever, um, we, we find out what is going to happen. In 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57, when the perishable, that's our bodies that are perishable, have been clothed with imperishable, and the mortal, our mortal bodies with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. That's from Isaiah 25, 8. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we have victory over death because one day we're going to be able to have a new body. Death's not the final. Death is the final enemy, but not the final final. I mean, we have to face death, but we're victorious over it because of what Jesus did in His victory. Philippians 1, 20-23. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but it will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Why is dying gain? Because you go to be with Jesus. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Paul's like, you know what? If God wants me to stay living, I'll keep living and doing ministry. But what I really want to do I really want to go home and be with him. Yeah, what shall I choose? I don't know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart to be with Christ. So what is Paul realizing? If I die, I'm going to depart from my body and my soul is going to be directly with Jesus, which is better by far. Okay? And then Revelation 21, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old things of the earth 
have passed away. Okay? So part of your salvation is you've got to go through death. But your soul goes immediately to be with Jesus and you await the second coming where your body will be reunited or if you're still alive, you'll be transformed either way. But the final aspect of your salvation is glorification. It's the final, it's the final, the final aspect. Now go back to Romans 8.30 for a moment. We looked at this golden chain of redemption a few weeks ago. By the way, did God create Adam and Eve as bodiless souls in the garden? No. He he created them with bodies, right? And souls. So God's intention from the very beginning was that we would have body and soul. So sometimes you get Tom and Jerry theology where when people die, these little ghosts go floating up and they play harps and diapers on clouds and you know, that's not the picture of, of heaven. We will be in a glorified physical body on a physical new heaven and new earth with Jesus physically there. And so God's intention from the very beginning was to have, you know, a physical, physical existence. But look at Romans 8.30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, you should notice something there. All those verbs are in past tense. Let me ask you a question right now, you who are living. All of us are living. If you're a Christian, have you been justified? I mean, have you been, have you been predestined? Past tense. Yes. If you're a Christian, have you been called? Past tense. If you're a Christian, have you been justified? Past tense. If you're a Christian, have you been glorified? Past tense. No. It's something that's going to happen to you in the future, right? Has has anybody here gotten their new body and in heaven? So why does Paul use it as past tense, as if it's already happened? Because in God's mind, it's as if it's already happened. So if he's predestined you and he's called you and he's justified you, he's going to make sure that in his mind, it's already a done deal that you're going to be glorified. So that's another proof for eternal security. You take away the links in those chains, then you have people that God has predestined, God who's called, God who's justified, who maybe one day won't get glorified. Who knows? God says, no, in my mind, it's already a done deal that you're, in my mind, it's as if you're already there. Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. So glorification, why would glorification be in the past tense? I think I addressed that. Isn't this a future reality? Paul's thinking that this final step in our salvation is so certain based on the other four chains that it's a done deal in God's mind, although it actually hasn't happened yet in time. And as we wait that day, whether Jesus comes back and we're alive or we've died and and our bodies go, you know, those who've died go first, um, the joy is that we will be, in a twinkling of an eye, transformed with the new body to live forever with Jesus in the new heaven and the new earth. No more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. And that's the culmination of our salvation. So you can think of it this way. Salvation involves something that happened in the past. You were chosen before time began. Jesus died on the cross in the past. Salvation is something that happened to you at a point in time where you, your eyes were opened by the Holy Spirit and he were, you, you were called, you were born again, and then you repented and believed in the past. There's a sense in right now you are being saved because God is keeping you and God's protecting you and God's making sure that you're staying saved. And yet there's a sense that one day you will finally be saved 
the, the fullness of your salvation in the new heavens and the new earth with your new body with Jesus forever. So that's kind of a big picture of our salvation.